Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Dr. Glanges. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 203, and it's the first in a mini-series about the Secret Service and forensics surrounding the president's limousine. And it's also a series of episodes that I've really been excited to do for some time. Mostly, the conversation will revolve around the damage to the windshield and whether it contained a through-and-through bullet hole that came from the front, or whether it didn't, and whether the Secret Service engaged in deception related to that evidence. I'll say it simply and very redundantly one more time. Another shot from the front or the side and not from the rear means that there had to be a second shooter. And that means a shooting conspiracy. Simple as that. And that is why the question of the windshield is a seminal question surrounding conspiracy. And that by the way, is why I took the tact I have with subjects such as the latest Paul Landis question. Meaning that while I think the Landis topic is interesting to many, and perhaps significant if true, well, in my own mind, it's just another incremental event that diverts attention, something for everyone to argue over, something that really doesn't change the preponderance of other solid evidence out there that may have already sealed the deal when it comes to proving that a shot from somewhere other than from behind took place too. And the presidential limousine and its windshield may very well be the last forensic evidence that seems to point solidly in the direction of a shot from the front. A shot that, if it occurred, likely pierced the front windshield of the presidential limousine and remained in a tight trajectory and then penetrated the president's neck. Probably penetrated by a full metal jacketed bullet and causing the throat wound in President Kennedy that Malcolm Perry and almost everyone who saw it at Parkland characterized as an entrance wound. All of the forensic evidence is interconnected, of course, And, like an episode of CSI, the limousine itself can't talk to us. But the forensic evidence itself can speak volumes. In this case, the forensics of the limousine may be the last best place to seek an answer on whether there was only one gunman or not. Because, as we already now know, the government obfuscated evidence related to the autopsy itself. The autopsy, of course, being the most important area of forensics to prove or disprove the very point of whether there was more than one gunman. And that ship sailed. And the most powerful of those forensics now hopelessly lost. And surely the list goes on from there of where there are aberrations in other evidence and investigative work that led to a myriad of questions about 
underlying motivations of the investigators. And, of course, we know that, too, from listening to over 200 episodes of JFK, The Enduring Secret. We know those problems exist with the autopsy and other areas of evidence as well. Sadly, though, if the Secret Service also covered up the existence of that bullet hole in the windshield and took steps to destroy and obfuscate the physical evidence related to the windshield and the limousine generally, what are we then to believe? And yet, that is exactly what seems to have happened here, and exactly the story that you will hear as we make our way down this fantastic rabbit hole. Is there still some question as to whether there was a bullet hole through and through? Well, because the official version continues to maintain that there was no hole, and because the windshield removed from the presidential limousine, the one sitting in the National Archives as evidence, shows no bullet hole, and because there is no definitively clear high-definition photograph taken close enough to the windshield and close enough in time to that very moment in Dealey Plaza, close enough to remove any doubt whatsoever related to any eyewitness testimony, well, yes, there is doubt. And that is exactly what the purveyors of the official story want you to believe, to create just enough doubt so that they can cancel the effects of at least 10 identified witnesses to date, eight of which we will articulate by name, who are certain that they saw a bullet hole through and through. And at least one of those witnesses was a glass expert who confirmed that the shot positively had to have entered from the front side of the windshield. All of what has been done is designed to create enough doubt in the average person's mind to cancel the eyewitness testimony that never made it into the record anyway. Only one of those 10 credible witnesses had their story officially documented of a bullet hole through and through in the windshield. And that one was an official himself. The report completed by Secret Service agent Charles E. Taylor, Jr. His comment buried, like so many other critical facts, buried in plain sight by the long arm of the official suppression that was extant in the day. And then it goes one step further. As Taylor would later be forced to testify and then pressured, he would recant his statement in later years, during testimony some 13 years later. But not before his initial official statement affirming the bullet hole was there, a statement made just days after the assassination. How did this initial statement slip by the rest of the Secret Service dragnet? How did this one agent fall out of formation and put down on paper a heresy that made its way apparently past Chief Raleigh all the way into the official record, (laughs) somehow becoming one more item that surely would have been sanitized right at that very moment if those in charge at the Secret Service were doing what we think they were? And we're also on top of their deceptive game, so to speak. But as Doug Weldon reminds us, there is no such thing as a perfect crime or a perfect cover-up. What appears to be very sloppy mistakes of cover-up abound in the area of evidence related to the presidential limousine and the windshield. Wait till you hear the whole story. 
And this one related to letting Taylor's report stand, which affirms the existence of a bullet hole through and through. The existence affirmed by a Secret Service agent is perhaps one of the most prominent mistakes of a cover-up as it relates to the story of the windshield. You will have to wait for upcoming episodes in this mini-series to hear the story of what appears to be the true core of the cover-up, the switching out of the windshields to remove the bullet hole. But thank goodness that you don't have to rely on just what I'm saying here. Hear the story and hear the witnesses and make up your own mind. Let's see if your takeaways are the same as mine or if you see something more innocent and less nefarious. Let the story and facts speak to each of us. And along the way, I'll point out the discrepancies in the record and you'll be forced to decide who is telling the truth and what discrepancies then are simply part of the larger deception or not. I think it's time. For me, it's impossible to be on the fence on this one. You have to decide who is telling the truth here. Not unlike the earlier Secret Service episodes, there is a gem of a JFK researcher that dedicated a good bit of his life to seeking the truth about the Kennedy assassination. An accomplished JFK researcher overall and a well-respected practicing attorney, he made his name as a result of the startling facts he was able to uncover related to the matters surrounding the windshield and the Secret Service's handling of it and the presidential limousine. His name is Doug Weldon. And piggybacking on the work of Doug Weldon, another Doug that you know well, Doug Horn, has become a strong believer in Weldon's proposition regarding the bullet hole coming from the front, through and through, in the windshield. And the serious obfuscation of the evidence by the Secret Service which is also present. Honestly, folks, you can't write this stuff because the story you are about to hear is another one where fact is stranger than fiction. The story tell from the moment the limousine arrived at Parkland to the trip back and then the dubious activities that surrounded the limousine and its windshield will keep you totally captivated. But it's a deep rabbit hole, and some of you may want to go down that rabbit hole deep, and some of you, <laughs> maybe not so much. Remember, in the end, it's a question of just a few things. Number one, does evidence of damage to the windshield indicate that a shot came from the front? And number two, is there evidence that the Secret Service deliberately tampered with or otherwise disposed of evidence and specifically, I say that as it relates to the windshield. Did they do so in order to eliminate evidence of a gunshot coming from somewhere else other than from behind? Did they tamper with this particular evidence deliberately to maintain the lone gunman theory? There are technical indiscretions in the documenting and destruction of evidence related to the limousine. Some that you'll hear about but none equaling the story of the windshield. Over the next few episodes, you will begin to hear the story from Doug Weldon himself and from me in more detail. And then by the time we are all done, I am sure you will have heard enough to make up your own mind as to whether there was or was not a hole through and through that came through the front of the windshield. 
And whether the Secret Service did or did not alter and destroy critical evidence related to the limousine in its windshield. And whatever you decide as a juror on this particular topic, well, I do suggest that it become part of your overall evaluation of just what was going on with the Secret Service. You've heard a lot already over the entire Secret Service series. There is more. And this mini-series on the windshield may very well be a pivotal set of episodes in your evaluation. I look at this very simply. They were either complicit or they were not. Once you determine that they were lying to us, that they participated in bold-faced lies and deception in the evidence, then it's simply a matter of degree. In terms of degree, the second question then is whether it was complicity in just a cover-up, or was there more? And the second part of the question may be more so applicable to the Secret Service than any other element of the government, given their unique juxtaposition of being the primary purveyor of presidential protection. Yes, Occam's razor and the lessons of history. All it takes is for the Praetorian Guard to stand down. So let's listen to the rest of episode 203 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. For some, it might be hard to believe the fantastic tale that I am about to tell. In a vacuum, it seems far-fetched. Unfortunately, I have already been down the rabbit hole of the autopsy and have seen what was on the other side of that looking glass. Sadly, this is no longer a fantastic tale to me. To paraphrase the words of Doug Horn, it has now become a distressing and depressing tale of cover-up, deceit, and deception. It's like a room full of mirrors. The pattern is the same, and the pattern is one of lying and intentionally covering up the truth by destroying some evidence and substituting altered evidence in its place. By altering or omitting important records, including those of date and time. All of this substitution is, of course, intended to suppress evidence of shots from the front and thus to suppress proof of conspiracy, so the government could more easily promote its lone assassin cover story. Imagine the weight of this on any one Secret Service agent. The low-grade and high-grade versions of fear were everywhere, and I suspect that there was a great deal of both nestled right there amongst the handful of Secret Service agents who were privy to what was happening. I do think that the physical damage to the windshield, if properly revealed, would have unequivocally resolved the existence of crossfire in Dealey Plaza. The Secret Service is the primary purveyor of the facts and events that you'll hear about today, with the FBI as a tangential player and possibly an unknowing but willing participant. And yet some of these facts and events have never been mentioned ever by anyone in the Secret Service. These sounds of silence are a signature of those with the word secret in their own name. 
But less cliche and more substantive is the real question. What to believe? Who to believe? Why? There is no doubt that the tip of the hat goes to Doug Weldon. Mr. Weldon, mentioned in the prologue, was, among other things, a professor of criminal justice. Keep that in mind as we progress through this story. And he is the one who, through his lifelong efforts, would find the needle in the haystack. The surreptitious movement of the presidential limousine to a Ford plant in Dearborn, Michigan, sometime between the last official forensic interaction with it at the White House garage on Saturday, November 23rd at 4.30 p.m., and then probably arriving in Dearborn sometime on Sunday, with ultimate discovery of its new location first seen by Weldon's star witness on Monday morning, the 25th. As the rest of the country readied itself for JFK's funeral that day, three men at Ford's Rouge plant would be carefully crafting a new windshield for the limousine and quietly disposing of the old one. There are no records showing that the car was flown to Dearborn on Saturday or Sunday after the forensic inspections. The meticulous records kept at the White House garage of the comings and the goings of that car and anyone going in and out of the garage that was not on the White House detail, well, they were supposed to be routinely entered in the record book. But entries showing movement of that car are conspicuously absent, including any showing that the car traveled by cargo plane on those dates. Remember, when a tree falls in the forest and you spot it on the ground, but you yourself didn't see it fall, well, that doesn't mean it didn't. More shortly from the star witness on all of this. We're going to tell the full tale, but this part of the story is especially interesting because the transport of the presidential limousine that weekend to Dearborn, Michigan, it must have been carried out by one or more of the Secret Service men themselves. But who? To this day, that fact remains a mystery. Our witnesses, you will see, joined that glass-making party after it had already begun, after the car had already been delivered to the plant. And it seems that Weldon was never able to pry the details of who the other two men were at the Ford plant who were working on the project. Fearful he was for himself and his family. The star witness fiercely protected others too. Two men who reported to him and who already had been engaged by someone else higher up. Two men who were already in the process of making the new windshield. And the star witness's boss at Ford, a VP whom he revealed on one of the tapes as being a man with the first name of Bob, was, by his actions, already involved in directing at least some of the initial actions that were taken at the plant. I know this sounds a little mysterious. We'll get into the details soon enough. Transportation to Dearborn raises even more questions. As the presidential limousine was not the type of vehicle that you jumped into and took on a road trip across the country, especially in the dead of winter. For a variety of reasons, that was not the protocol with this limousine. The limousine was routinely transported via a C-130 cargo plane and then used locally, wherever the event or the president happened to be. 
In light of its center stage presence at the moment of the assassination, one can hardly imagine that the government would allow the vehicle to be driven a long distance in order to have restoration work done. Yet, there is a total absence of C-130 cargo transport records related to the limousine in the aftermath of its delivery to the White House garage the night of November 22nd. At least for the time frame under this scrutiny, which extends into late December. Strange, you say? Yes. Knowing that there is verification of the car on Monday morning, the 25th, in Dearborn. And then later at Hess and Eisenhart in Cincinnati, Ohio. What gets stranger about the transport of the car is that, in a memorandum written by Chief Raleigh on January 6, 1964, to Chief Counsel Rankin of the Warren Commission, Raleigh would unequivocally say that the car was driven to Ohio for the restoration work, and that road trip took place just before Christmas. The car was driven on those dates by Vaughn Ferguson, the Ford liaison related to the limousine. Doug Weldon got to know the owner of Hess and Eisenhart as part of his research. This was the specialty coachworks group that did work on the limousine after it was actually constructed by the Ford Motor Company. A jovial older man that remained active in his own company well into his 90th year, he was a source of important information. When Weldon asked him if the limousine had been transported by driving the car to their place of business, Mr. Hess immediately scoffed, and he said, absolutely not, that it had been flown to nearby Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and then delivered from there. So where are the C-130 transport records of that trip? They are completely absent. There is no record of that trip, just as there is no C-130 transport record of the trip to take the limousine to the Ford plant in Dearborn, Michigan, the weekend of the assassination, after the forensic review was completed. And just as there is no entry into the White House log of the limousine leaving the garage to make that trip to Dearborn that fateful weekend, and just as there are written assertions by officials of glass being installed locally at the White House garage in Washington, D.C., on the very same dates, that other very compelling oral evidence, which you will hear, supports an entirely different location of the limousine in Dearborn, Michigan. There is no possibility that both of these stories can be true or both false. One is false and the other is true. If the story of deception is true, then there are lingering questions. Which Secret Service agent was on duty that day at the garage? Which Secret Service agent looked the other way or was on break and possibly out of the picture long enough for someone else to take the car out of the garage? How come no one has ever come forward to tell the rest of this untold story? But as I said, remember, when a tree falls in the forest and you spot it on the ground, but you yourself didn't see it fall, well, that doesn't mean it didn't. You don't have to debate that it got there because it's there. But you might debate how. 
Well, I have been pretty ethereal to this point. So let's back up and tell the general story of the Odyssey of the Limousine from the moment it hit Parkland to well into our story, at least as best we can. You see, there are gaps. We know, you know, because the HSCA attempted to put a timeline together related to the limousine. They, too, finally came to the conclusion that there were gaps of unknown origin where the limousine was unaccounted for. As the limousine pulled up in Parkland and its inhabitants were finally extricated from it, in the frantic first moments there, there would be an interval of time that the limousine was in plain view for all to see. Who knows how many people had the presence of mind that were in that gathering crowd to stare at the windshield and see the pattern of destruction. A through and through bullet hole? Imagine if you were one of them, and later you hear the conclusions of the Warren Commission that only one man fired shots. Now that fact might then sink to the bottom of the ocean of your mind, gripping you with fear because you know it was now a fact material to a cover-up and one that you knew. Fortunately for us, there were four individuals that were part of this passion play that day, that were right there at Parkland and observed it and lived to tell about it and have become part of the permanent witness list. Witness to a hole, a bullet hole in the windshield, through and through. Four named incredible witnesses who saw it right there at Parkland and two others right there with them, still anonymous. And those other two would likely have been credible witnesses themselves at that moment just through their association and vouching by the former. And that would be so if it were not for their own fears and desires to remain anonymous. The names of at least one of these two anonymous witnesses present have never been revealed. But nevertheless, the compromising of the crime scene and its evidence began to happen almost immediately. And the limousine itself was the epicenter of the crime scene. The chaos of the moment is certainly and innocently responsible for some of it, but not all of it. On things minor, I won't attempt to separate where the dividing line is. I'll let the questions looming over the larger issues help us determine what might not have been kosher in light of the circumstances. Let's take a moment and meet the four credible witnesses and let them tell their stories. Of that moment, when views of the limousine were still available for public consumption before it was moved out of position and away from scrutiny by the general public. First, let's recount the story again of a witness that we have already met a long time ago in a much earlier episode of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Second-year medical student Evalia Glanges was at the time enrolled at Southwestern Medical University in Dallas. The medical school was located right next door to Parkland Hospital, and some of its medical education activities took place at the hospital, which is typical of a medical school. In an interview with Doug Weldon in 1999, Dr. Glange stated that it was a real clean hole. And in a videotaped interview aired in the suppressed Episode 7 of Nigel Turner's series, The Men Who Killed Kennedy, entitled The Smoking Guns, she said, it was very clear. It was a through-and-through through bullet hole through the windshield of the car from the front 
to the back. It seems like a high-velocity bullet that had penetrated from front to back in that glass pane. At the time of the interview, Dr. Glanges had risen to the position of chairperson of the Department of Surgery at John Peter Smith Hospital in Fort Worth. She had handled firearms her entire life since a very early age. Accounts of her characterize her as a firearms expert, although there are no verified qualifications that she would be a forensic expert. Certainly, Dr. Glanges handled guns with facility beginning at an early age, before she was even strong enough to hold one upright. She would tell a story of how, early on, she would set the barrel on the fence in order to be able to steady it. Undoubtedly, this contributed an extensive practical knowledge of firearms that was useful in assessing that hole in the windshield. Doug Weldon would tell the story that Dr. Glanges was nearing retirement age by the time the interview took place, some 30-plus years after the assassination, and she was no longer reticent to tell the story. They found her at the right time in life. Obviously, a highly credible witness— it wasn't too long at Parkland after Glanges made her observation and said it out loud on the day of the assassination that a Secret Service agent whisked the car away from the spot and away from public scrutiny. As we know from an earlier episode, it was likely Sam Kinney who did that, as he had already promptly received an order from Malcolm Kilduff to move the car away from the public's view so that the gore of the incident could be sheltered. Kilduff was the acting press secretary on the ground that day in Dallas. Let's listen to her now from her recount of it contained in the History Channel's episode seven of The Men Who Killed Kennedy, The Smoking Guns. Further corroboration of a shot fired from in front of Kennedy's car came from the late Dr. Rivalia Glanges in her only filmed interview. She was no stranger to guns. I've been handling a gun since I was a child. Couldn't even hold the gun. I had to put it on the fence in order to shoot it. Paul! On the morning of November the 22nd, 1963, I was a second year medical student at Southwestern Medical University in Dallas, Texas. We ran around the side of the building to the emergency room exit, and the presidential limousine was there. Had been staying there for some time just watching the back of the emergency room when I realized that there was a bullet hole in the windshield. Talked to my friend next to me and said, look, there's a bullet hole in the windshield and pointed it out to them. At the time, I did not know any of the details of the, of the shooting. I was quite shocked when I looked up and saw the bullet hole, but it was very clear. It was a through and through bullet hole through the windshield of the car, from the front to the back. I don't believe there's any, even any cracks associated with that bullet hole. It seemed like a high-velocity bullet that had penetrated from front to back in that glass pane. At which point, a security officer of some type raced forward and jumped in the limousine and drove it off, even as I was leaning against it, to an area uh, back of us somewhere. And that was the last time I saw the limousine. Before the car was moved, three other credible and named witnesses would see the limousine at Parkland and observe the through-and-through bullet hole in the windshield. 
those three men were Dallas police officers, Stavis Ellis, H.R. Harry Freeman, and James Cheney. All were in very close proximity to the presidential limousine as part of the motorcade that day. And we'll explain in a minute exactly where. Dallas police officer Stavis Ellis, who was in charge of the motorcycle escort for the motorcade through Dallas, was clear about the existence of the hole. And he was positioned with his motorcycle relatively close to the lead car that carried Chief Jesse Curry, Sheriff Bill Decker, and Dallas Secret Service Special Agent in Charge Forrest Sorrells. He would get to Parkland ahead of the rest, and he would be right there as the limousine arrived. Ellis told interviewer Gil Toff in 1971, there was a hole in the left front windshield. You could put a pencil through it. You could take a regular standard writing pencil and stick it through there. Freeman corroborated this, saying, I was right beside it. I could have touched it. It was a bullet hole. You could tell what it was. David Lifton published these quotations in his 1980 book, Best Evidence. Ellis repeated this in later interviews to reporters and on radio programs. Yes, you could put a pencil through it. And in extensive interviews with Doug Weldon, Mr. Ellis was unequivocal about observing the hole. His recollection was that the hole was lower in the windshield, but that he was absolutely certain of its existence. He did describe the hole as being on the driver's side of the rearview mirror, which is consistent with other observations and the photographic evidence. But Weldon thought his recollection that it was lower was probably inaccurate. Ellis recalled actually placing a pencil in the hole. He recounted that there were numerous people and police officers at Parkland Hospital who viewed the hole, which is an important point, re-emphasizing what I said earlier, that many more people could have seen it, folks that are not on record as having done so, but did. Ellis vividly remembers that while he was observing the hole, a Secret Service agent came up to him and tried to persuade him that he was seeing a fragment and not a hole. He would unequivocally respond, that's not a damn fragment, that's a hole. Weldon, with a keen ear and eye for ferreting out non-credible witnesses, had a high regard for Ellis and thought that he was a man of high integrity on this topic. I wish he had asked Ellis to identify which Secret Service agent tried to persuade him that it was a fragment and not a hole. That would be an interesting reveal, wouldn't it? As Ellis stated, there were other Dallas police officers that saw the hole, and there was one more of them that went on record about it. One of those was H.R. Harry Freeman. Freeman was also a motorcycle cop who was positioned ahead of the presidential limousine, but behind where Ellis was. Dallas police officer H.R. Freeman would state, I was right beside it. I could have touched it. It was a bullet hole. You could tell what it was. As mentioned earlier, Ellis was closer to the lead car than he was to the presidential limousine. It would be Ellis and Freeman that would lead the way to the hospital at high speed once the tragedy got underway. 
All right. Well, I've been going like crazy here. And as you might expect, it's getting late and I'm getting hungry and it's time for a sandwich. So let's pause here and we'll pick this whole story back up in episode 204. Thank you for listening to episode 203 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.